You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. There I am. If you're watching from home, welcome, which I think is a lot of people based on how I look out and see here. I think the rain, it's scary when it gets on the roads and they get wet. We're not used to that here in Arizona. Hunker down, wait for it, the storm to pass, right? Welcome this morning. This Friday is marriage night, so if you haven't had a chance, sign up. Let Blake know out in the lobby or um, one of the few remaining pastors who are left here. On Monday, our pastor, our team from Mexico got back, and they had an incredible time, brought the Spirit of the Lord down there and brought COVID back with them on the bus. So everybody on that bus, except for a couple, has tested positive. So half of our pastors and elders, and then some elders and then directors, spouses were on that trip. So they've all just stayed home all week. And it felt like an episode of Survivor, where Thursday, when I came into the office, it was just me, Pastor Blake, and Pastor Mike. And we're like, who's next? Which one of us? And we made a pact, though, that if over the next couple days, two went down, whoever was left was preaching this morning. And so here I am, by the grace of God, Pastor Blake's out there, Pastor Mike's out there, um, but we want to pray. We've not only got the staff here, but we've got a lot of people in our congregation uh, who have come down and gotten sick over the last few weeks. I guess it has finally found Pinal County out here in Mass, and uh, so we want to pray, ask for God's protection and his blessing and complete healing over all of those here in our congregation, our midst as well that we're seeing. So if you just bow your heads with me, we'll pray. Lord, Lord, this whole last year and a half has been so confusing and tumultuous at times. Lord, as the sickness has been here in, in this place for a long time, we see it just running more and more rampant around us. And so we pray, God, that fear would not sell into our, into our hearts, but that we would trust you, the great physician, Jehovah Rapha, would you come? Would you heal those who are sick in our midst? Would you heal those, Lord, who need you so badly? Would your, would their healing of this small disease be a massive change spiritually in them? Would they see you? Would some find you for the first time, Lord, as you heal their bodies? We praise you, God, for you are mighty and great, and we thank you, Lord, that you never leave us to walk this alone. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open it up to Titus, the book of Titus. Yes, and if you're watching from home, we're glad you are here watching. Open up your Bible to the book of Titus as well. This morning as we are in the fourth part of what is truth in a world full of chaos at times and misinformation at times, what is truth is what we've been talking about. And this morning, I want to uh, share specifically about what is truth in regards to discipline. To discipline. And there is freedom, my friends, in discipline. Do you know that? There is real freedom in discipline. We as a country enjoy the freedoms we have because of the discipline of the men and women who have gone before us, right? Discipline to do things they didn't want to do. Discipline to do things that made their lives harder and uncomfortable. Discipline to do things that others may have been scared to do. Discipline brings about freedom, although it doesn't usually feel that way when we're in the midst of it. Discipline is hard. It's not enjoyable. 
And so this morning, we're going to look at this idea of the freedom of discipline, spiritual discipline specifically, that God has set before us. And I want to put before you that I believe some of the reason we see such a struggle in the church right now for truth and a struggle for unity is because we have laid aside these spiritual disciplines and made them optional disciplines. What's an optional discipline? Not discipline. Right? That's not a discipline. Could you imagine if uh, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, three of the best to ever play the sport, chose some days to work out? Some weeks to work out and other ones to be like, meh. All three of those guys I mentioned are notorious for being the first in, last out of the gym, working harder than everybody else, right? Being there constantly, training their bodies, disciplining their minds and bodies. And somehow in the Christian faith, we've got this mindset, this notion that we don't need that same level of discipline. That, well, I know, there's like five or six spiritual disciplines, I'll do two or three of them in my life and then forgo the others. And then those two or three I'll do when I can or when I'm able. And so this is what I want to look at this morning, is this concept and what could we walk away with here today to bring more discipline, more life-giving, more freedom into your life. Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, and it has brought salvation for all people. It has trained us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled or disciplined, upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So this is speaking specifically about the discipline of Jesus Christ, his purpose behind it, what it accomplished, and why what is the why behind why he did it, right? Second Timothy, I mean, 1 Timothy 4.2 says to be ready in season and out of season. Have you heard this before? What is in season? We understand it in terms of a baseball team or basketball, football, right? The football season just started a couple weeks ago, and then it will have an end, won't it? It ends with the Super Bowl. That's what it ends with, and the season is over with, it's done, and now you are out of season. But this wasn't written to a football team. It was written to the average human being. So when Timothy says, be ready in season and out of season, that should make us ask, well, what, for me, is in season? Have you ever thought about that? What's in season? What's out of season? Are we ever out of season? Are we always in season? Right? You sort of read past those words and be, yes, yes, just be ready all the time is what it says. Just always be ready. Yes, but also no. So in season is a time when you are going through a type of trial, a challenge, something that is difficult, something you are having to focus highly and intentively on, right? This is being in season, So you have a sickness come up in your house, or like what we have in the church. You have a bad, you lose the job, right? You lose a friend, you lose a relationship, you've got a moral decision to make, and it's placed right in front of you, 
and it's going to affect your livelihood, but you kind of know the right answer, but you also know that the right answer is going to harm you financially. Those are all in-season moments. Those are moments where we are stepping up to the plate, so to speak, and here comes the curveball. Out of season are those times when it just feels like everything is just going. The days are pretty much the same. You wake up, and there's not a whole lot of problems, if you can believe it. Things are relatively simple for you. That's out of season. Timothy says to be ready in season and out of season. And you cannot be ready for either if you are not disciplined. Every good athlete trains in the off-season, right? They work on whatever it was during the season they couldn't work on, and they try to work on that in the off-season so when they go back, they're better. We understand that, right? Do you know that we should be the same exact way as followers of Christ? That we should be training in those times when things are good, when they feel easy, when it's just, whenever somebody asks you the question, how's everything going? And you go, good, good. What you're saying is, oh, I'm off. I'm, in, I'm out of season right now. Everything's fine. You should be training. We can't give up training. We can't let it go. We can't say that's for legalists. That's for people who just need to check a box in their life. One of the greatest lies the devil is perpetrating in our culture and our time is that those who focus on the spiritual disciplines of life are people who are trapped by legalism and works. Isn't that great? Talk about a brilliant strategy. Get them to believe that the very thing that makes them healthy is the thing that makes them unhealthy. If you think the devil is dumb, you may want to try to think about that again. He is cunning. He is insanely brilliant. And he will, he will act upon our weaknesses, and he knows where it is that you are weak. So, we have these disciplines, and our job is to be able to distinguish between them. Spiritual disciplines like prayer, it's a pretty good one. Reading the scriptures, journaling. Who journals? Does anyone journal here? Or diary? I've got a little lock on mine so no one can read it. Evangelism. You know evangelism is a spiritual discipline? It's something you have to train up in, in your body, in your mind. Stewardship of your time and money. Offering is a spiritual discipline. As Christine was saying up here earlier, right, she's reading those verses, and she came to me beforehand and said, hey, are these okay because I'm doing the offering? And I said, yeah, that looks great. And she said, it just feels like everybody already knows this. And I said, that's the point. Everyone already knows it. Everyone who plays a sport knows the disciplines they must do for that sport. Did you know that? They aren't confused by it. If you're a lineman, you know that if you're 125 pounds, you're in a lot of trouble. And you knew somebody to get that position. You know what you need to do. You know the workouts you need to do, the eating regimen you need to do, everything. You know it. The question is, are you doing it? And so I said, of course, we all know that stewardship of our time and money is something we should do, but we need to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded that it's not just something we do so that the church can pay its bills or the, so that I can be returned, right? I give God 10%. He, re, he, re, he restores me and gives me uh, more than what I give him and yada, yada, yada. It's not that. It's that it's a spiritual discipline 
Because there is a tower, there is a fortified tower in my life that I run to when the enemy comes. And that tower is either, as we're going to see here, the Lord God, or it is our wealth, our knowledge, our friendships. What is the thing you run to when the enemy storms the gates? And then you have fasting, silence. How do you like that one, parents? The discipline of silence. I'm trying to teach my kids that one. It's a spiritual discipline. It's good for you. It's better for me and mom. Lastly, serving. The discipline of prayer, reading the scriptures, journaling, evangelism, stewardship of your time and money, fasting, silence, and serving. These are incredible disciplines for a son or daughter of God to learn and to undertake in order to experience freedom in relationship with Christ. Real freedom. Real freedom of mind. Freedom of your spirit not being burdened, filled way down, feel like you're constantly trying, right? I'm talking about real freedom. Hebrews 12, 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than unpleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now there are two types of discipline. There is the discipline with the rod, which was not spared upon me, thank God. And then there is the discipline we're talking about, where there is a self-imposed discipline to forego the flesh, forego what's comfortable, what's fun, in order to discipline a certain part of your body, mind, or whatever it is you're working towards. And here in Hebrews, I love this, it says that through discipline, although it is unpleasant, it will produce this, what? This fruit, and the fruit is a peaceful righteousness. Have you ever thought about the fact that you are disciplining your body when you're reading the scripture or journaling or praying, and that from that discipline, you can expect to receive a peaceful righteousness? That should lead us to say, what is that? What does that look like? Tangibly, what does it look like in my life to have peaceful righteousness? Well, what is righteousness? Why does the Bible talk about going after it so much? I know what self-righteous people are, and I don't like them. I know what it is to be self-righteous, and I don't like it. So why do I pursue a peaceful fruit of righteousness? American Dictionary says the quality of being morally right or justifiable is the definition of righteousness. But the righteousness the Bible speaks of is not our own. It cannot be garnered through the disciplines. Do you understand this? And this is this delicate balance that our human brains, we struggle to get this. So you're saying if I do the disciplines, I'll attain peaceful righteousness. No, I'm saying if you do the disciplines, you will engage in a relationship with the one who will give you his righteousness. You see the difference? It doesn't, the, the, the spiritual disciplines do not lead to the peaceful righteousness. They lead to a relationship with the one who bestows upon you his righteousness. This is the massive difference between religion and relationship. 
This is where we struggle as a people in the midst of the unpleasant training and discipline to get this concept into our, our heads and our hearts is I am not engaging in the discipline in order to attain righteousness. I'm engaging in it so I would know the heart of the Father, so I would know the sacrifice of the Son, so that as the Holy Spirit, as God's voice speaks to my spirit, I recognize it amongst all the other lies that are out there. Everything else imitating the Spirit of God. This is what righteousness is. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says, Man approaches God most nearly when in one sense he is the least like God. For what can be more unlike God than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, Righteousness and penitence, limitless power, and a cry for help. Sometimes our nearest moments to God are when through the spiritual disciplines we come in our brokenness, our cries, our repentance, our weakness, our humility. And in those moments we experience that fruit of peaceful righteousness. You experience that relationship. It's an amazing thing when you get a hold of that relationship. When those disciplines aren't being born out of a desire to be driven to be better or a desire to, to be higher on the scales of righteousness or higher in heaven or maybe if I do more, I get more back from God, a sort of karma reality with Christianity, which we often buy into, Right? I remember when I first started tithing as a teenager, I read the promises there in, uh, was it Micah, Habakkuk? No, Micah? Malachi. Malachi. I knew it was an M of some sort. Right? That if I give, then my storehouses will be full. And if, if I give to God with a cheerful heart, then he gives back a hundredfold and all of that. And it was like, all right, sort of this, you know, tit for tat and, and karma. And I do good and good comes back to me. That is the world's lame pathetic understanding of trying to attain righteousness apart from a holy creator God. Without having to submit their will, without having to repent, without having to have humility, my pride stays intact. I get righteousness and the world gives me good in return. Do you see the counterfeit view of that versus what God is calling us to? One requires actual discipline, actual letting go of self, and the other gets to keep everything you have and then get more. You see the difference? Proverbs 25, 28. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In the time that this is written, and honestly throughout all of history, walls have been used to protect the city. Who here in Santan Valley has a home without a wall around it? Who came from a part of this country where it's just open grass between you and your neighbors? Right? Weirdos. I love it. I went back to Colorado Springs once on business when I was in the business world. And for my first time, I'm driving through these neighborhoods where every home looks like it's out of a Hallmark movie, and there's no fences, and the people were beautiful, and the barbecues were going, and I'm like, it's two in the morning, what are you doing? And the fact is, everything about this place was just choice, and there wasn't a fence 
to be seen. But the fact of the matter is, cities have always protected themselves with a fence. And the people live outside the fence for their lives. Except for what? When they're attacked. All the people come in behind the fence, the gates are locked, they're fortified, and there's safety behind the fence. And so the proverb is speaking to this concept, and it says if you see a man without discipline, without self-control, then it is like a city that has been broken into because its walls are broken down. And here's the thing about a city's walls. Just a small hole in a city wall can be enough for an army to penetrate and weaken it. This is why Nehemiah, what does he do when he gets the news that the walls of Jerusalem are completely in shambles? What does he do? He weeps. Yeah. He we- it says he weeps for days. Why would you weep for days? Because walls are torn down. Because he's not weeping for the physical walls. He knows what it means. He knows that Jerusalem is vulnerable, that God's people will be overrun soon, that they have no fortified place to go, that her enemies have an easy prey to come and attack. And so he weeps. He then puts his life, his career, everything he has on the line to go before the king to ask for the funding and the ability to go and rebuild the walls. Proverbs 18, 10 through 11. I want to finish this imagery here that we get from the Old Testament, and then we're going to go back to Titus. Proverbs 18, 10 through 11. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it, and they are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine that it is a wall too high to scale. You catch that? And as Americans, I don't care where you're at on the American financial uh, slide, we are wealthy people. And this proverb says to the wealthy person, their money, their wealth is their fortified tower. And they have this illusion that they can have enough wealth that they can build a wall so high that no enemy can come and break it down or climb over it. This is what it's saying, right? But the proverb says, the name of the Lord is the fortified tower and the righteous run to it. So inside of a city, there would always be a place inside the walls that if the walls were breached, all the people would then go to that spot. It was the tower, it was the most fortified. And there they could find safety. And in this proverb, as it says, our Lord is our fortified tower. For you and I, in the day that we live in, we know God, the creator of the earth, through his son, Jesus Christ. And so he is our fortified tower. But the fact of the matter is, even if you've given your life to God and you've said the prayer, you've repented, and all of that stuff that we sort of built around the decision, yes, you are saved right? There's no doubt about that. God says, call upon my name, believe in me, repent of your sins, and you shall be saved. But do you know him? Is he actually become your tower, your fortified place that you go to? Every human being, we, we strive and we look for safe places to be, right? Last year, when all the toilet paper was gone, you remember the fear? 
the great overwhelming pain of what will happen when we run out? What will we do? What will the laundry be like? Remember that? We all have this space that says, I need to be comfortable, I need to protect, I need to build up, I need to stockpile. Because apart from God, we have no other fortified tower. We are it. Our money is it. Our intelligence is it. Our house, our guns, our cars, whatever you want, that is our tower. And apart from that, we're out of luck if those things run out. You understand? This is America's righteousness, is our wealth. At times it's been our kindness and our charity, but unfortunately the people of God and the church have made their wealth their righteousness. They've given their life to God, or really their death to God, but their, their tower, their walls are still fortified by wealth. This is why we talk about offering, right? But this is why offering in the church is always like, oh, the church just wants my money. Right? You know that. You know that feeling? You've heard it. You've thought it. They just want my money. No. It's just another one of the spiritual disciplines. And because we live in America, I know and you know that the greatest God competing against God Almighty is your money. It is. Go down to Mexico where our team just was. Their God is not money. Their God is just a place that is dry and warm to sleep and whatever food will be there the next day. But it's not money. For us in America, the biggest competitor that Jesus has in your life is money. It's why we talk about money. We don't talk about it a lot here, and maybe that's to a fault. But it's not because we need your money. It's because it is a spiritual discipline that apart from having that be a disciplined area of your life, no matter what you speak with your mouth, your actions and your heart are tied to the fortified walls of wealth. It just is. So, this brings us back to Titus 2, 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared. The fortified walls have appeared in human form. I saw this video this week of an atheist responding to a Christian talk about the need for an atheist to have a great faith, and the atheist is just trying to tear down the argument. And one of the things he says is, if God is so loving, why does he make himself so obscure? Why doesn't he just show us that he exists? Why doesn't he come down and speak to us? And you're just like, he did! His name was Jesus! There is more information outside of the Bible on the man Jesus that existed 2,000 years ago than on any historical figure that has ever walked the earth. Even 80, 100 million, trillion, billion years ago, there's more on Jesus. There is more information, more proof, more writings, more eyewitnesses than any historical figure before the modern age. <laughs> I just wish God would come down and tell us he's God. Even if he did, and he did, you still wouldn't believe. Right? Isn't that the story of the rich man and Lazarus? If, they, if, they, if I go to them and tell them how bad hell is, they'll believe God says they have the Moses, they have Moses and they have the prophets. If they don't believe them, they won't believe you. And it seems like, no, no, if my dead grandfather comes back and tells me there's a heaven and a hell, I'm going to believe. No, you won't. And you know why you won't? Because your disciplines are in your wealth. 
Your disciplines are in your talents or your knowledge. And so where will you go ultimately? Will you go to the memory of your great-grandpa who came back to life and told you there's a heaven or hell? Or when life really comes at you, when the enemy comes at you, are you going to go to your fortified walls? You're going to go to your fortified spaces, the places that you feel safe. It doesn't matter if someone came back from the dead and tells you there's a heaven and a hell. You will go to wherever it is that you worship. So God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, disciplined, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. This is the gospel. This is the message here as we look that if I begin to discipline my body, mind, and spirit, and I begin to get unity amongst those things, and I do it through prayer, through reading the scriptures, through journaling what I read, through serving, through sacrifice, as I do these things, I engage in a relationship with this God, with this Jesus Christ. And through that relationship, I receive his righteousness, and it's placed upon me, and I am counted righteous as he is righteous. It's a crazy concept, because I know me. I'm not righteous. I'm not morally dignified. I'm not morally always good. And yet, the more I discipline myself, the more I'm able to walk in that, the more I'm able to understand it, the more I'm able to want it. And that's the true blessing right there, is to want it. Jonathan Edwards, right, the great Christian preacher, theologian, said that the will, right, your willpower, the will, is just the exercise of the heart. You will ultimately always do whatever you want to do. You will always do whatever you want to do. In his book, Freedom of the Will, he says, you never, ever, ever, ever do anything you don't really want to do. Ever. Now, that's an interesting thing. Because immediately, if you're like me, my mind goes to all the times I do things that I don't want to do. Right? Like sit for two hours in 105 degree heat while my son gets lit up out there on the football field. In training and practice. This isn't even the game. Just practice. But he wants me there. Yes, I do. No, you don't. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. But I have to do it. No, you don't. Someone puts a gun to your back and says, give me your wallet. Well, I had to give it to him. No, you didn't. You could have died. You could have been shot. You wanted to live, so you gave him your wallet. It's an interesting thought because you then really get to the heart of what is in the heart. What is actually there? I do, you will do what you want to do. You want to eat better? You want to be healthier? You can say it. You can cry about it. You can do whatever you want. But if you don't actually begin to take the disciplines needed to get there, guess what? It doesn't matter what you say or how many packages you bought or how many canisters of protein powder are up in the pantry. You don't want it. I want Jesus, I want Jesus, I want God, I want to transform life. I I don't want to be addicted anymore. I don't want this. If that's true, here's the roadmap. 
right? This is what the Bible is. Here, here's how you can be set free. Here's some programs we have. Here's accountability. Here's relationship. We're going to walk through this with you. Here's even the finances to do it. These are the things we've done as a church. And we've, we've laid out the road. We've made it as smooth as possible for people. And yet at the end of the day, they still walk away from it because you don't want it. It's like Linus's blanket. It's disgusting. It's filthy. And yet it's yours. It's that comfort. It's that wall. It is the fortified wall of your life. And so this leads us to the close, which is, okay, how do I change that? And this isn't just for somebody who's a new Christian. This is for those of us who have been a believer for decades. I need to change that. Because I recognize in my life that the discipline of following Christ is still just that. It's a discipline. And I hate it, and I kick against it, right? What's it say? Do not kick against the goads. You know what the goad is? A sharpened stick with a super pointy end. Every time, when I first learned that, I pictured what it would be to take my shoe off, set that goad up, and then just kick it as hard as I can. Isn't that a terrible image? That is so much pain down in your foot. And yet this is what we do when we take the things of God and we say, oh, I got it, I don't need discipline. I go to church and I worship and I listen to Christian music and I do this. I don't need those other things. Okay, Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How did Jesus discipline himself to do something so awful, so unbelievable as taking the sin of the world upon himself, being forsaken by the Father, an eternal relationship he's known. How? We know it was difficult. We know that as he sat in the Garden of Gethsemane in the dark, he sweat drops of blood. We know that he asked God to let the cup pass from him. We know that he begged his disciples to stay awake. We know that as the time drew near, he was feeling the full weight of it. How in the world did he stay disciplined to follow through? Hebrews 12.2 tells you it was for the joy of you and I knowing him that was set before him. That's how he followed through. You see, Jesus followed through with the cross not so that way he could have a bunch of little self-righteous, morally good people on the earth he created. He did it because he knew that there was a relationship that was going to become available when he did it. And it was the joy of that future relationship that kept him disciplined when every one of his disciples went away, when he was mocked, beaten, accused. I mean, he even tells, right? A couple times he says, I can have a legion of angels come and save me right now. Don't play around. I know what I'm doing here. And he stayed disciplined, but he didn't just stay disciplined to defend his name or to make righteous people. He stayed disciplined because of the joy that was set before him to be in relationship. And there is, and therein lies the secret of discipline. My first memory of discipline 
as a young kid was eight or nine, shooting hoops on the basketball uh, hoop, I get, yeah, basketball hoop outside our house that my dad nailed to our roof. Super official. And I loved it more than anything. And I was tiny little pipsqueak of a kid, and I knew if I was going to do good, I had to learn to shoot threes, and so I just shot threes for hours every day. We go to the park, brought the basketball, shot threes. Every day after school, shot threes. I didn't care if it was raining, if it was 110 degrees out. I was shooting threes, shooting free throws over and over and over again. And I loved it. There was nobody making me do it. It was the first time in my life I was disciplined to do something my parents didn't tell me to do. And I loved it. And I, fought, I didn't watch TV or video games or play with friends. I just wanted to do this thing, right? But I wasn't doing it because I was hoping to be in the NBA. I was doing it because I genuinely loved the sport. And I wanted to be better. Now, it paid off because my freshman year, I actually got accepted on the varsity basketball team. Pretty neat, right? I, I purposely did that to you. It was a Christian school of about five guys and 12 girls. So, technically, had they not added me to the basketball team, they couldn't play in the league. So they had to. But the point is, I still made it on. There were slightly more guys and girls than that. I did it because I love the sport. I did it not because I was driven uh, to please anybody or do anything other than the love of the sport. If you look in Genesis 29, you'll see a story of a guy named Jacob who loves this woman named Rachel. And in order to be with her, his uncle says, you have to work for me for seven years. Do you know what it says about Jacob's time during those seven years? It says it was as if the seven years was just a few days. Why? It says, because of his love for Rachel. Because he loved her so much, the cost of the seven years of work meant nothing. It breezed by. This is the relationship with God the church so desperately needs right now. It's the relationship. And relationship is found in discipline. When I married my wife 17 and a half years ago, if we weren't disciplined to continue to do things that every good marriage needs, which you'll learn about this Friday, if we weren't disciplined to do those things, then over the last 17 years, as the many storms have come upon our marriage, we would have each ran to our own separate fortified place of security. And ultimately, that's where relationships break apart. But because we were disciplined over many other areas, we were able to endure storms and still be together and still be stronger than when we were young and in love. It's the same thing with Jesus, friends. And if you want to know Jesus, if you want to be in this relationship with him, you've got to be disciplined and it will set you free. The very discipline that you think you don't have time for, the prayer, the journaling, the reading the scriptures, the serving at the church, the tithes, any of that. I don't have time. I don't have the availability. You're, you're, <laughs> you're cutting off your arm to save your hand. It makes no sense. It's not going to do anything. The discipline is required in order to know who Jesus is. So I encourage you today. Wherever you know that you're lacking discipline, wherever you can look at your life and honestly say, I know that God's asking me to be more disciplined here, and make a commitment today. 
with someone you know, someone who will hold you accountable. Say, this is an area of my life that I'd like to see freedom in and discipline. Because here's the really scary thing. We'll invite the band out. We're going to close here. Is those who don't know Jesus don't know Jesus for two reasons. One, they stuck their head in the sand and they don't want anything to do with religion or Jesus or any of it. Oh, I've studied, I've researched, I've, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't want it. I don't want to submit my will. I don't want to admit that there is a creator who I'm answering to. I don't want any of that. And so I'm just not going to look. I'm going to close my eyes and then I'll just live in the world. The other is somebody who God has intentionally blinded. The scripture says he has intentionally blinded them. He has not called their name. They can't come to him even if they wanted to. And the fact is they can't even want to because he has not sustained the desire in them. Which one is a more scary place to be in? The second one. At least one day the person with their eyes closed to God and religion could open them. And perhaps they'd see God and his love. But to the one who God has blinded, who he has given over, it says he has given them over to their lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He's given them over to it. They've asked, they've begged, they've kicked against the goad for so long, God said, here you go, it's yours. And one of the most horrifying things to me growing up was that idea of God ever blinding my eyes to his presence. Now, I didn't have a full understanding as a young man of where I was and what it takes to get to that point. But I can tell you that as I have grown with the Lord over the years, the spiritual disciplines have kept me in relationship with God when it has felt like everything is crashing around me. When I don't understand, when I am worn out, when I don't feel his presence, when I don't see him answering prayer, because my faith isn't based on him answering prayer. My, base, my faith isn't based on a feeling I get. My faith is based on what, the work that was done on the cross. And because of that work, I am promised the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so that's the foundation. That's the walls that I rest in, that I find comfort in. That no matter what's going on in our country and our world, I'm in a fortified place of Jesus Christ. And for some of us today... There are some disciplines we need to get back to, to for us to realign our, our eyes and our relationship with Christ. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you here this morning and we prepare this time of communion, where your body gets together and we remember, Lord, that you did connect with the world you created. You didn't just connect with us, you just... You didn't just speak from a cloud, but you came down in the form of Jesus Christ. And for those who doubted, you did miracles and things that couldn't be explained. And then if we still doubted, you died on a cross, and on the third day, you rose yourself from the dead. You walked this earth, and hundreds of people saw you. And they saw you ascend into heaven, God, and yet through our own blindness, through our own ignorance, I choose to not see you, and I pray, Lord God, that you would bring discipline into my life. That the relationship that you desire, that you endured the cross for, would be one that I 
desire with my whole heart, Lord. Lead me in this where I am weak, God. I am incapable of finding you apart from your Holy Spirit leading me. So, Lord, lead me. As we prepare to come and partake of the bread and the juice together here, the body and the blood of Christ, I encourage you to take a moment and just talk to the Lord yourself. The thing about discipline is we know the disciplines we aren't doing. It's not a secret. We, it's not a mystery. We don't have to ask God and hope he tells us. We know in our hearts the things that we have laid aside or that we have viewed as, you know, difficult. And so let's just take a moment before him. that Christ was betrayed. The Gospels tell us that he took bread and broke it amongst his disciples and then told them, this is my body which is being given to you. We thank you, God Almighty, for the sacrifice. Let's taste and see that the Lord is good. tells us he took the cup and he told the disciples that this would be the blood of a new covenant that the blood he would shed on that cross would cover the sin of all mankind past, present, and future and that all we would have to do is look up to him and ask for forgiveness we thank you, Lord, for the blood of Christ. We thank you for salvation. Let's drink together. 